0: I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costom.
1: Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is on assignment. He's out at a MUFON event. We say hello to Matt and all the MUFON people that are out there. I think by now though they've moved past the MUFON meeting point and now they're in the MUFON party point. Yeah. And ain't no party like a MUFON party.
2: Because a MUFON party don't stop.
1: Wondering where that sound's coming from. I'm hearing Amityville sound. Oh, you didn't oh, turn the sound down on the laptop. There we go. Oh, there. we found I the spoiled carpet. it. And of course, we Somebody are talking that about, word. We are talking about Amityville tonight, and naturally, <laughs> that means we're going to have all kinds of problems because it's just it's kind of the curse of the show. Whenever we talk about Amityville, the Amityville horror, the DeFeo case, the Lutz family, anything that has to do with the Amityville story, things go haywire. And I wrote about it on my blog on wbsm.com. Uh, earlier this week and it's still up there if you want to check that out it's uh, wbsm.com slash spooky dash south coast and it's also linked up right on the front page of spooky south coast.com as well and you know we we have our share of technical problems here anyway because we try to run spooky tv on our website so you can see what's going on in the studio as you're listening to the show here on wbsm and on wbsm.com you know, we have the spooky TV feed on our website spookysouthcoast.com and the chat room and all that and we're excited cuz tonight we finally got multiple computers up and running and we're able to access the chat room during the show even though if you're watching on spooky TV it's kind of over to my right and I can't always see it but I'm going to work on repositioning that during the show to find something that's comfortable. You know, but we're trying to make sure that we have it as fully interactive as possible. And we came in super early tonight. We had everything set up and ready to go. We're just about ready to jump on the air here and the spooky TV laptop crashes, like crashes,
2: not like our Cars. usual
1: problems, which is where we screw something up. Yeah. But just crashes. So uh, I'm just going to throw this out there right now. Uh, if you go to, if you want to go to PayPal and make a donation, Tim at spookysouthcoast dot com. Something tells me we're going to need to be upgrading some of our equipment here. So Tim at spookysouthcoast dot com, please. We need the money. And uh, also, I noticed that, you know, I'm having. Problems with my tablet trying to type in the chat room, and then we start running the audio off the computer over here, and we get this Spanish voice talking over things. Uh, so I mean, it's just, it's, it's going to be one of those kind of nights. But it we, we knew that when tonight. we signed up for it. A little weird tonight. We knew it was going to happen when we signed up to talk about Amityville, which we will do with our guest tonight, Eric Walter. He's the director of the new film, My Amityville Horror. And it's not Eric's Amityville Horror, but it's actually the story of Daniel Lutz, the oldest of the three Lutz children who lived in that home for 28 days and became the basis of the entire Amityville Horror saga, the Lutz family. And just as we had Christopher Quarantino on, who uh, was formerly known as Christopher Lutz before he went back to his birth name, uh, we we had him on and he shared some stories about what went on inside 112 Ocean Avenue for those 28 days, and also how the Amityville Horror has continued to affect his life uh, even today. And the same thing with Daniel Lutz. It, It seems like it's a little bit different Of a story Uh, And we'll get into the differences as we go on Later on tonight But uh, there are a lot of similarities in the story And I'm not talking in terms of what happened I'm just talking about in terms of the effect That it had on these men And and how they grew up in the shadow Of the Amityville house So it's going to be a fascinating discussion I really want to get into uh, Some of Eric's thoughts On what Daniel says in the film I had the opportunity this week to watch the film My Amityville Horror and it's definitely a different look at this story. Uh, it's, I'd say it's almost it, it brings it humanizes the story. You know, it takes it out of the the horror movie, scary book realm that it's been in for the past thirty five years, and it puts it in the perspective of making you think, "Gee, this was a family. This was a group of people who had their own issues, had their own hopes and dreams, and, and how the Amityville." case affected them. Uh, So it's when you watch the movie, like you really understand uh, what it was like to live in that house and to live with the story of that house for the rest of their lives. So we'll talk about all that with uh, our our guest, Eric Walter, coming up in just a little bit. But uh, Matt, I was sharing with you a little bit before the show went on the air, some of the experiences we had last week at the Houghton Mansion as part of our Legend Trips event. Yeah, I heard it was wild. Oh, man. It is... I love every place that we investigate, but, you know, normally I go away from an event uh, with, you know, strong feelings about, about the location and, and about my experiences there and about, you know, the, the main thing for me is that everybody has a good time. That's what's important. Everybody yeah. that goes there, well, actually, it's important that everybody stays safe, but on top of that, I want them to also have a good time. And even if they don't have a paranormal encounter, I want them to go, go away from this event saying, gee, you know, at least I had an entertaining evening. And that's normally what my thought process is. But going into this, I was really fired up to get into the Houghton Mansion because I'd heard so much about it. But now it's stuck with me more than any location that we've ever done any of these events at. As, uh, I've thought about it so much over the past week. I, I actually missed being there. And uh, I definitely feel like it's it's kind of calling me back. And I've been talking with some of our fellow legend trippers, and they all seem to seem feel the same way. You know, if uh, if you check out some of the pa- uh, posts they put up on Facebook and, yeah. and on the social media, you know, it's uh, they miss it. They want to go back. <laughs> and if it wasn't four hours away, I'd be there right now. Yeah, because that's just how amazing it was. And uh, I did write a blog on uh, on wbsm dot com about. My personal experiences there, but I'll I'll just sum it up real quickly for everybody here on the radio. Uh, we had a tour the night before for the people who uh, joined us for the two night portion of the event, and uh, we got to walk around and see the inside of it with a, a personal private tour from Josh Mantello of Berkshire Paranormal Group, who are headquartered in the mansion. And as he was taking us around, just on this tour, sharing with us some of the stories of what happens where, we actually heard disembodied voices. Uh, Not once, but twice. We heard it on the third floor. Uh, It sounded like it was coming out of a closet, but there was no devices or anything in the closet that would make any kind of uh, noises like that. And then we heard it again when we were on the first floor, and we were standing in the stairway area listening upstairs. We could hear voices. So it was uh, was already active before we even brought everybody in for the event. And then normally, you know, when you bring a significant amount of people into a haunted location, there's a chance that you're going to dampen – the effect of some of the activity, but that was not the case. Once Saturday came and everybody let loose on the investigation, uh, it was one of the most paranormally active nights mm. we've ever had doing these events. Well, the
2: house—the house itself is huge, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's immense. And every time I went there, I went there three times over the course of the weekend, and each time I went there, I found new rooms that I had never found before. Yeah. And, and Josh said it literally took him like a year to stop like finding nooks and crannies of the house. Uh, that he had never explored before. And the psychomantium was amazing. I didn't have a chance to go in there uh, because everybody that attended the event wanted to go and have a moment yeah. uh, in that. And, and people were coming out very affected by what happened. I mean, even even Dave Schrader, uh, who was our guest from Darkness Radio, he left having an emotional, personal experience in that psychomantium that, that he couldn't explain, but that he, he was glad that he had. Uh, yeah. and, and that seems to be the the story that a lot of people came out of it with you know it's like uh, i'm glad i went in there i didn't want to do it or you know i didn't think anything was going to happen but i'm glad that i went in there because it was affected people so personally and that's what happened to me with my experience that i had uh on the third floor of the the mason hall uh, that's attached to the mansion i i mean the only way to put it is i shook hands with a ghost and I wrote about it on the blog at, at wbsm.com, so you can check it out to get the whole story. But I will say this: it changed me as an investigator. Really? I'm no longer going to go running into these things like I have in the past, with you know, uh, you know, guns blazing. You know, come on out. Yeah. We want you to did, come out. Show did, yourself.
2: Like, uh, you have more of a respect for whatever's on the other side.
1: I do, because I had a, I guess the only way to put it is I had a, a human moment with a ghost uh, you know I, I had uh a connection with a spirit yeah. where, and i never had that before. where there's
2: some sort of intelligence behind it is yeah. it definitely almost. seemed
1: yeah it definitely seemed to be or at least I, I don't know if i'll say necessarily an intelligence behind it but there was an emotion behind it yeah and i've long thought that you know as much as i throw out a lot of these theories that i think are kind of part and parcel of talking about the paranormal uh you know that these are things that we create with our own mind they are you know they're manifestations of our own beliefs you know they're just leftover electrical activity whatever kind of way you want to categorize mm-hmm. it i've always been uh against the idea that it's the soul of a deceased person that just doesn't make as much sense to me as some of these other theories mm-hmm. uh but the way that i've been able to categorize a ghost in recent years is i feel that a ghost is an emotion yeah and it's do you feel like that's why it's such a,
2: such a like a uh, a moving experience for a lot of people? I think because so. it's it's that conveying of emotion from the disembodied spirit to the physical form.
1: And it's it, exactly, and it's it's exactly that. It's not even that the emotion has an intelligence behind mm-hmm. it. It's just that it it exists and it's out there, and you have to put logic aside in order to experience that emotion to some degree. I mean, obviously, you want to stay logical within the moment but you have to kind of think outside what we've been told and what we've learned to have that experience and you know when somebody pulls out a device and they want to measure a ghost to me it's starting to look no different than you know would you pull out a, a mel meter or an emf detector or, or a 2 to try to measure love yeah. to try to measure anger you know uh these these experiences that are palpable in the air when we experience them the 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 energy that you can feel in a room when an emotion is conveyed that's kind of what a ghost seems like to me and that's definitely what this experience was and it, it I mean, definitely changed things for me
2: it would make sense if uh, a spirit would leave some sort of imprint it would be an emotion
1: yeah and that's what i think that we're encountering um
2: especially if there was let's say like a tragedy like at the houghton if um the, what happened the uh the guy there was a, after a car. Yeah, accident. after the
1: car accident, the driver went out to the barn and and, and killed himself. Uh, and then AC Houghton died uh, about nine days later, I think, or yeah. eleven days later, and uh, no, nine days later on the eleventh. And uh, the yeah, that imprint of it, though, is negative as that story is. The activity doesn't seem to have that negativity. It seems to be very positive, uh, very benign, very very benevolent. Mm-hmm. Except in Witter's room where there is kind of a, a, a negative force. And, you know, normally you know me. That's what I encounter when I investigate. You know, yeah, I yeah. go up, I butt heads with whatever the, the dark side of the, the investigation is, but not in this case. And I think that I'm going to go into it with a different perspective and a different point of view. So you can read about that on WBSM.com. Just go to the... Uh, to the post there for the show host blogs and go down for spooky or go to the shows too, uh, for spooky South coast. And you can find it there. And it's also linked up on the front page of spooky South coast.com. If you want to read about it. And I, I do hope that you do because, uh, it's, it's going to be something that becomes a reference point for me, I think going forward, you know, that's, it's, that's the game changer for me. And, uh, we also have uh, numerous legend trips events that we're putting together. Uh, we're actually in discussions with a couple of different locations and trying to hammer out dates, but we'll be coming back here to New Bedford sometime in the summer uh, for Fort Tabor. They're in the works of securing the date for us for that. And uh, I know that uh, one person uh, in the chat room will be happy to know that it's it's uh, we're working on hopefully June for that. And uh, then also we're in discussions with a few other places, so we'll have more information forthcoming. Don't forget, if you want to get on the mailing list, go to legendtrips.com, because if you're not on the Legend Trips mailing list, you cannot get... Uh, the exclusive pre-sale access to those events. you and, and we've got Dead of Summer coming up at Lizzie Borden's. Mm-hmm. That will definitely be taking place sometime in August. And when that happens, uh, you know that those sell out in pre-sale. Yeah, so they do. I can't even get a ticket to those. <laughs> so <laughs> Sometimes I'm worried I'm not going to be allowed in. So uh, definitely make sure that you uh, go and join the legendtrips.com mailing list so that you can find out about these events when they happen. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by tonight's guest, Eric Walter. He's the director of my Amityville horror. It is featuring Daniel Lutz. It is Daniel Lutz's story about his experiences with the Amityville house. And in the years ensuing, you can check out the website for that Amityville movie.com. And the film is actually available. You can get it uh, through video on demand. You can get it through the online uh, video services, uh, and you can also get it from you know your regular Comcast and, and Verizon on demand I've seen it on my on Verizon mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's really it's it's a unique perspective and we'll talk about Eric about that and a whole lot more coming up in just a little bit here on spooky South Coast mm-hmm.
3: been similar to something that has been in my dreams my entire life I could not separate reality from from what was going on there, there came a point where it was like this family nightmare come true uh, and and I could not just it, it was almost like being awake in your own dream but that scene to me has been uh, a, a a reoccurring dream probably 500 times what my life um and again it's never about
1: all right welcome back to spooky south coast there we go the amityville curse is happening again on us that was from the teaser trailer uh for the film my amityville horror which you can check out on the website amityville com. and uh, of course i try to play it and it doesn't buffer fast enough and Just one of the many problems that we have talking about Amityville. Hopefully we can get through the rest of the night without any issues because we're joined by our guest, Eric Walter. He's a writer, director, and documentarian specializing in the exploration of the unexplained. As a Maryland native, Eric began writing and producing original short subject films at a very early age, refining his artistic skills in nearly every medium he could lay his hands on. In 2008, Eric moved to Los Angeles to pursue his career in the film industry— His continued research into infamous unsolved mysteries fed his desire to pursue documentary filmmaking. He has consulted on numerous investigative projects for both television and radio and is currently developing his next feature film project for 2013. My Amityville Horror is his first feature, and he is joining us on the line right now to discuss it. Good evening, Eric. How are you doing?
3: How's it going? Nice to be with you.
1: Oh, it's great to have you! And uh, we have to apologize in advance for any technical issues because, as I referenced there, whenever we talk about Amityville, all hell breaks loose on our show.
3: <laughs> I understand. I have a couple of those uh, experiences myself, so I'll be interested to chat and see what yours are.
1: Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, did you have technical issues in the making of the film that seemed kind of unusual and out of the ordinary?
3: Well, I, I don't know about technical issues, but it's just been you know one. Uh, issue to another, just trying to get the film done in, in general. Um, this has been a very difficult uh, process, obviously, working with the original participants. Um, not many people want to talk about this anymore, mm-hmm. especially the original people that were involved in it, uh, the Lutz family. Uh, the, you know our, My producing team and myself, we tried very hard to incorporate a lot of the different experiences of people, but uh, many people either passed away or don't want to speak about it anymore, so this was kind of a first-person perspective on Daniel Lutz, who was 10 years old at the time uh, when these occurrences allegedly happened, the haunting occurrences. Um, And he also was the oldest of the Lutz children at the time. So probably, I don't know, he's in the position of remembering the most detail of his experience inside the house.
1: And and he might have been privy to a little bit more information than than, uh, Melissa and Christopher might have been, too. Correct. So uh, I thought I read somewhere that you've actually had a long fascination with the Amityville case yourself.
3: That's true, and I, you know, ever since I've been a very young kid, you know, I've been uh, just totally enamored with the story. I read the book as a kid, uh, the book The *Amityville Horror* by Jay Anson, and you know, I was overtaken by the story and interested to the point that you know I began investigating it myself. I, you know, went to Amityville. I grew up in Maryland, like you mentioned, and so I drove up to Amityville. I went to the historical society. I, you know, I looked into records. I talked with people there. I went to the house, of course, and took photographs and this type of thing. I, you know, made friends with people online and began to accumulate documents, uh, you know, trial transcripts and things like this. Um, And just kind of developing an opinion about the story. And it took many years. I mean, many people, outsiders, want to say this was either a hoax or was, you know, all of it was true. And, you know, I always said that I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle of all that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, In in many ways, the truth is unattainable in this case. You know, it's been lost in so much misinformation about the story. uh, It's difficult to actually get, you know, within the myth that surrounds all of it. So uh, in 2007, I established a website with a friend of mine called AmityvilleFiles.com that basically was uh, a treasure trove of everything Amityville. Um, Newspaper archive, uh, kind of a creative, you know, presentation of the story and a place that people could go and kind of look into the records and develop, a, you know, their own opinion about what happened there from an unbiased perspective. Because so many of these other websites were kind of trying to disprove the story or, you know, anything you would find online if you never could find something to, you know, look at and say, I want to make up my own mind about this and find out all the information. And I still don't think all of the information is up there, but, you know, there, there is quite a bit. <laughs> so it's kind of a place, you know, it's been an ongoing project. Uh, for me, just personally.
1: And and you're right about how it is hard to sometimes separate the, the mythology of Amityville from the fact, because so much of what we've seen through the various media has influenced what we think is the true story. So uh, a lot of people will assume that because it was in Anson's book or because it was in you know any one of the Amityville films, that at some point the Lutzes must have said it. So uh, we're allowing other people to put words into their mouths.
3: Right. And what I've never understood, honestly, is is why George and Kathy Lutz allowed Jay Anson uh, so much creative license in the, with the original book. Uh, because, of course, he took a lot of creative license and in, in things that were inserted in the book um, and used, you know, George and Kathy's real names, the children's real names. And, I, you know, honestly, that was probably the worst thing that ever could have happened to the family, that that book was put out the way that it was with, you know, a true story stamped on the front cover. Um so in many ways, you know, it's attributed to, you know, the action they took following that leaving the house at the time. So I think that's probably the, the you know, unfortunate part about this because it's now snowballed into something that it really never was. I and mean, it- that actually is what fascinates me and was the main source of in- inspiration for one of the threats within Miamiville Horror.
1: And you're right. They could have taken that, you know, that that uh, William Peter Blatty approach of giving them a fictionalized name, uh, you know, taking the true story, and instead of having a true story on the cover, having based on a true story on the cover, and giving them uh, fictional names to kind of protect their identity. Uh, but right. I, I guess from what I understand, and, and you probably would know this better than I, but their hand was kind of already forced. Uh, because William Weber was already uh, the attorney for right. for Ronald DeFeo was already working on a book that would have outed the Lutz family anyway, so this was kind of their own uh, almost preemptive or or counterstrike to what Weber was doing.
3: Right, but if if you know, it's always been my question, I guess, if that was the case, and why did they allow so much creative license to be taken with the book? Right. Um, you know, they were copyright holders on the book, uh, George and Kathy. That is, and you know, it's just kind of an. I, I guess they didn't have any. Uh, creative control over that end of it, or how J. Anson was going to portray it. But, um, yeah, that's what's been one of the unfortunate things about it. But, of course, you know, the movie straight far and wide from that. Of course, the re- by the time the remake came around in 2005, you know, we were far, far removed from anything based on truth. And um, So that was kind of the inspiration for me was to, again, present an unbiased perspective somewhere people could go and find out all the information if they wanted to, and develop an, a well-balanced opinion. It took years for me, and it, and it started kind of, you know, developed into an obsession for me, and something that kind of followed me. And so, in many ways that, you know, as much as I've this, you know, sought out this project, the documentary, Miami, Devil horror, it's also kind of found me. What was interesting was, in 2009, I was contacted by a friend of Daniel Watts, who was a contractor in the Queens area of New York. And Said that Daniel was wanting to go public, but wanted to speak to somebody who was kind of educated on the story and didn't want to have to explain or educate somebody you know on all the facts, this type of thing. And of course, Mm -hmm. at first, I thought this was a scam. Or you know, why if if this is him, why is he wanting to go public now? Is this some kind of money-seeking venture, or is this something that he uh, was seeking you know attention or something like this? And so, I of course. Saw a picture of my, you know, I demanded, I, I asked the, guy, the gentleman, you know, could you send me a picture? And you know, I'd like to see him. And I couldn't deny when he did so, uh, the striking resemblance he had to Kathy Lutz, his mom. Right. And so I knew, I knew then that we're dealing most likely with the right person. And I began speaking with with Danny over the phone. And as anyone who's seen the film will, you know, will know right off the bat that he is an extremely intense uh, personality, and it's hard to. Hard to get a sense of his character over the phone, so I flew to New York in August of 2009 with a, you know, just a digital recorder and a, a set of black and white photographs, the investigation photographs that, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren had taken on, uh, a, they had hired a photographer on March 6, 1976 during the investigation of 112 Ocean Avenue. And I brought these photographs along with me, and upon meeting Daniel, I laid these out in front of him, and we began having discussions. And you could feel, you know, the years coming off of his chest as he started to talk about this. So many of the pictures there he hadn't even seen. Um, one of which is the infamous ghost boy photograph, which he had a lot to say about. You know, he, of course, he thinks that it you know, definitely was something of a supernatural nature. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of conjecture about that over the years, but we'll get into that anyway. So it was that was an initiation process for me into his character and learning who I was dealing with here. And it was not an easy process. (laughs) That's definitely for sure.
1: It it seemed like even though he was willing to, to open the door, so to speak, there were a lot of rooms that remain locked. That's
3: very, very accurate. Um, and actually quite infuriating for me as as a filmmaker, not only did many of the, like namely Christopher and a lot of the other people in the family did not want to speak, um, because of Daniel's involvement, Mm -hmm. but, um, Danny was, you know, refusing to go in certain areas of his life, uh, admittedly, and that was a difficult thing. Of course, you can't force someone to speak, but a lot of things, you know, like the time in his life when he disappears, he says, uh, he's sitting with Lorraine, and she she asks him, you know, where did you go after running away from home, which is what he said he, he claims he did. And, of course, by all accounts, I've talked to some members of the family, and, and that's, you know, been corroborated. That end, you know, Danny kind of disappeared from the family at, at 15 and he discussed that, you know, he disappeared into the desert and just kind of wouldn't talk about that end of his life, but you get the sense that there definitely was something, uh, you know, up (laughs) there with him. And so it was kind of an interesting uh, left of the imagination. So much of the film is that way.
1: I I understand, you know, what it must have been like for you as a filmmaker, because as a viewer, as you're watching it, you know, you're hearing these stories, and some of them seem kind of fantastical, that, you know, Here's a family that was pretty much, you know, even still in the public eye in the early 80s because they were still pumping out Amityville movies. And they were and John Jones was writing those books that were, I don't know, 95, 98 percent fiction. But, you know, they still had the Lutz name in them. So they're still under a microscope. And and it 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 just didn't seem plausible to me that, oh, yeah, you're just going to let your son take off. And and you're just going to sure. allow this kind of stuff to happen, but if, if you've corroborated with the family, then I guess then it had to be true.
3: Well, in the end of that, there was a tumultuous relationship between Daniel and his stepfather, George. Mm-hmm. That that definitely was corroborated, and and I think, uh, you know, can't be denied. Um, and so much of Daniel's story and account is interlaced with not only the paranormal events he claimed happened, but with his relationship with George. Um, and myself, my own opinion, and a lot of people have been asking, you know, what what does the filmmaker think? Because, you know, I really wanted to leave the film open to an objective nature, just as I did with the site, in the sense that because there are no answers, and as I mentioned, the the truth is unattainable in this case. There were only five people in that house, two of which are dead, three of which were, you know, very young children at the time, and they were were the only people to corroborate their events. There was no one else there to corroborate them. Right. So... You know, you're in a position now where it is left to myth. it is left to, to study the effect that it's had. I mean, Daniel has been, as with his siblings, I'm sure, have been living in the shadow of the Amityville Horror for their entire adult lives, and have moved on in different ways from it. So, this was an opportunity to kind of examine that from a psychological uh, impact perspective, but also, for me, the, the film represents the blurry line between reality and imagination, and... For me, that was an interesting uh, perspective because I'm—I actually am highly skeptical of a lot of the different stories that Daniel does tell. I feel that a lot of his anger uh, and his statements about George are colored by his anger mm-hmm. with the person, um, the need to blame—you know—put blame on someone about the haunting. That's my own opinion um, through working and talking with him. Um, at the same time, you know, he would probably. Fight me vigorously on that and say that you know everything he's saying is true. Um, I'd be interested to hear you know someday Christopher's opinion on it. I know he said similar things you know about the stepfather, but right. you know without speaking for either of them, you know it's that's just my opinion.
1: Well, when we had we had uh, Christopher on the show uh, a couple of years ago. And right. when he came on, you know, he was he was being somewhat evasive because he had his own media projects in the works, so he didn't want to share a lot with us. But he shared right. a lot with me privately off the air, too. And, uh, but one thing he did comment on the program about was that, uh, you know, similar stories to what Daniel was telling about George, that he had a hand in the occult, and that, that they feel like that was what caused the problem more than living in the DeFeo murder house. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, I, I just look back at it, and I, I have to think that, Again, being young children, they were something like what ten, seven, and five when they lived in the house, and, and their memory of it is going to be tainted by the media portrayal of it. And right. I understand that you know they could say you know I never watched the movie till I was twenty, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you also have to understand that George and Kathy had to stick by their story for all those years too. So when they go right. to their mother and say, "Hey, mom," you know, is this really what happened? Naturally, Kathy's going to say yes before she's going to openly admit that she was involved in any kind of fraudulent activity. Not that I'm saying that she was, but I'm just saying she would have a reason to lie if that right. was the case. So you don't know if you're getting an actual experience or what he thinks he remembers his experience really was.
3: Right, and you know, it's it's kind of a difficult process even for me because I've always had the gut feeling, and it and it is a gut feeling, it, and I, again, it isn't based on any proof. However, I've heard... I know uh, close to, you know, pretty much all of the interviews given by George and Kathy that have been made public just through my own research over the years, even prior to getting involved in this with Daniel. Um, I've always had the opinion that something, something happened to this family of a, of a real paranormal nature. Um, as I mentioned also, I, I believe that it snowballed into something that it never really was and now represents something that it never was um, from the outset. And as you were mentioning, you know, this is this is now it represents something completely different uh, for the children. It's it's like the third, uh, pers- you know, third party perspective. Even though he was Daniel was there, I still question a lot of the. I don't want to say, validity would be the right word, but they, they, I question a lot of the stories and and how uh, lurid detail he goes into. I mean, he, he went into detail about standing in a certain position on, a sta- you know, on the stairs at a certain time, the way someone was looking. I mean, you know, not only was this a traumatic event at the time, I believe that, you know, I would certainly remember details of that, but as a 10-year-old, you know, I don't remember details in exacting order like that. You know, so there's kind of a, as anybody who has seen the film, there's a sort of theatricality to his character right. that I feel is filling a lot in, you know, a lot of the gaps in. Um, on the story and kind of creating that narrative. So, for people, you know, I would just say to watch this with an open mind. And it's, you know, as Laura DeDio, who I'm good friends with and I, I really respect her and, and was very pleased to have her uh, involvement uh, in doing the interview with Daniel on the film. Um, she mentioned that you know Amityville is a thread, and this is a this is another installment essentially in what's become its own subgenre. Mm-hmm. And so this documentary isn't. I, I feel transcends the topic of Amityville in many ways, and isn't just an Amityville you know film. It it really kind of comments on anyone a witness to paranormal events, to the unexplained, and, and trying to rationalize and explain that to a public who's already mired in misinformation for decades on this story, and it's not the easiest of prospects.
1: Well, we've only got a few minutes here left before we have to take a break for the news. Uh, but when we come back on the other side, I want to talk more with you, Eric, about. You know, some of the theories uh, of Amityville. And I want to talk to you about, you know, the process of digging through this story uh, and, and in making this film. But uh, one thing that I do want to ask before we come out of here in the first hour is that intense emotion that we saw out of Daniel Lutz and, and the way that he reacted uh, to some of your questioning, was it like that when the cameras weren't on too?
3: Yes, very much so. And, and we'll get into that in detail, uh, <laughs> I hope. So, sounds <laughs> yes. like some good stories there. Very, very much so. I will, um,
1: I will say this: after watching that film and, and talking with Christopher, um, I don't know if it's uh, if it's a, a family trait, but they they are they seem to be very intense uh, individuals.
3: Well, they have a reason to be. Yeah. I would say, you know, so I I, I can understand at least I can understand that, and you know I respect Daniel for coming forward and having the guts to do this after so long. Um, but I, I don't see the film in the same way that I or others would see the film. He sees it as kind of you know, vindication in a sort of, sort of way from what he feels the stepfather triggered on the family. Uh, I see it as someone who's been dramatically, psychologically scarred by something that he cannot explain mm-hmm. and something that happened in his childhood. And um, that's a unique perspective for me to explore and so everyone will pull something different out of it which is i think the best films always resonate with that theme
1: absolutely and i I originally contacted your producer andrea uh in trying to get an interview with with danny for the show and and she said that he's not doing any media and after seeing the film i kind of understand why because there is no filter with him and right uh,
3: well he he told me that he would do this one time and was not interested in being interviewed thousands of times about this topic mm -hmm. so uh you know, I knew I had one chance to, well, I'll be interested to see if he comes forward and hope that he will, you know, eventually. But uh, I think that he's, you know, he's going through a time of trying to remove himself from it, too. You know, it's an extremely difficult process.
1: Having you on to discuss the film saved us a lot in FCC fines. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right, and, and uh, we have about a minute here before we take a break, but where can people find the film? I mentioned that, you know, it's available on demand uh, with the cable companies, but where else can they can they pick up the film?
3: Right, is playing in select theaters around the country now. You can go to AmityvilleMovie slash screenings to find out that information. Also, um, you can find it on iTunes, Amazon Instant Download, uh, Xbox, PS three, you name it. It's you know Comcast, Time Warner. it it's up there. Cable VOD. It's pretty much all over the place.
1: Excellent. So all
3: the information is on our website
1: and it's all linked up right on the front page of our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. We're going to take a break for the news. When we come back, we will talk more with our guest, Eric Walter, about the film My Amityville Horror. Uh, check out the website for that, AmityvilleMovie.com, and we'll talk more about Daniel Lutz, his experiences, and, and the process of making this film and trying to get this uh, information out of Daniel uh, with such a traumatic uh, experience in his life and, and trying to share that in a way that, you know, you can't help but listen with a, with a skeptical ear to some of the things that they say. But at the same time, you see the look on his face and it just seems like, you know, he's so scarred from this. So uh, check out the film for sure. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen but it does it am 1420 wbsm presents spooky south coast with your hosts tim weisberg and matt costa
1: Welcome back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the Silent Assassin, Matt Costa. Again, science advisor Matt Moniz is out at a MUFON meeting, probably now a MUFON party. Yep. And uh, hopefully they're thinking of us. I know that he's uh, hanging out with uh, the Starborn twins, who were recently featured on that new show on the Bio Channel about alien abductions. Oh
2: yeah, I saw that on uh, I think I on Facebook or. Whatever.
1: But you didn't see the show? No, not yet. It, it premiered last week while we were at the Houghton Mansion, so I haven't had a chance yeah. to see it yet, but. I'll check it out. I've heard good things. But we are talking tonight about Amityville, hence all the technical issues that we're having. Uh, I noticed that people in the chat room on Spooky TV at com have been having their internet crash, their Wi Fi crash, you know, losing the video feed. That's what happens. And that's why I keep just typing in the chat room whenever anybody says anything. I just Amityville. type Amityville. <laughs> because. That's, there's really no other way to explain it. That's what happens on the show when we talk about it. Uh, we either have technical issues or we incur FCC fines, as we did with Jackie Barrett. And uh, we have our guest joining us tonight, Eric Walter. He is the director of the film My Amityville Horror, which uh, tells Daniel Lutz's story uh, about what went on in those 28 days at 112 Ocean Avenue. And uh, Eric, in the film, you, you actually have uh, Daniel standing outside of the house, uh, was that the first time that he'd been back there since it since it happened?
3: No, I don't believe so. I believe he had been back uh, several times before. Yeah, he, he actually lives in New York, as I mentioned, uh, in the Queens area of New York. Uh, the rest of the family lives in another state, and he's kind of uh, you know separated from from everyone else. So I know he's been back several times. I mean, he never really actually showed any fear of going back to the house, which was pretty interesting. Uh, Laura De Dio, I know, made many comments about that you know he really showed no fear at all except of actually discussing going back to that place in his mind in his memories about it and trying to rationalize it that was where he began to lock up and become very very tense and argumentative with with everyone with my crew anyone who was on camera so it was a very very selective you know process of trying to expose him to certain parts you know certain interviewers certain people to try to extract these memories and it wasn't something you could just kind of Get all done in, in one shot, you know. So it was a you know, as most documentaries are, it takes a very very long time, and this film uh, took a little over four years to produce. Wow! From the process of me befriending Danny to kind of gaining his trust to uh, you know shooting the interviews and doing the post production all myself, and it's kind of it's been uh, you know a passion project, but it's also been something that's you know haunted me uh, as well.
1: Well, I mean that must have been though the the hardest part of the entire process is, is convincing Danny that you weren't just another one of these people that are out there looking to make a buck off the Amityville saga.
3: Right. Well, I mean, documentary in and of itself is not <laughs> uh, a, a lucrative uh, uh, you know, industry to get into if you're looking to make you know, big money or something, you know, right. it's Not a fictionalized account or, you know, another Amityville horror sequel. Uh, you know, we were really trying to tell the truth and that was Danny's truth of what actually happened in the house. And so, again, as I mentioned, this was a psychological portrait of of someone who had been, you know, scarred by these events. And so, you know, from my perspective, examining that uh, effect was the main prerogative, and I think we were very successful in doing that. Of course, I look back on it now, and I wish, you know, that I had had gotten uh, Christopher and, and various other people to speak in the film. I actually had spoken to Christopher many times prior to... Shooting the film, you know, actually rolling cameras at all, and uh, uh, was going to work with him. But uh, I think, you know, he got, you know, yeah, he wanted to produce his own projects. And so I guess, you know, we'll all have to wait to see what he has to say about it coming up.
1: And were you able to make contact with Melissa?
3: Uh, She wants no part of anything Amityville. So it's really. You know, I, I try not to talk uh, for any of the other family members. Right. You know, what I've really been able to interact with, but um, yeah, she, from what I understand, you know, Christopher seems the other, you know, the only person who's really kind of come out and, and talked publicly other than Danny now. But um, now that George and Kathy are passed away, you know, we're losing many of the actual key witnesses who were there at the time, and the kids were so young. You know, you it's a you have to look at it in a different in a different light, and for me this is like the Amityville horror through the eyes of a 10-year-old, essentially, even though, yes, he is now a 47-year-old man, but, you know, how has the truth, you know, been twisted and morphed in that, you know, large period of time in his own mind, in his own memory? And he actually said to me, you know, um, I, you know, don't remember things in, you know, sequential order from, like, day one to 28. I remember it, you know, in severity order, which Hmm. is kind of interesting. And, And that's kind of how the film introduces itself too. Um, in many ways, it's kind of an insiderish, you know, film. Uh, it's, it's for people, you know, if, if you have a little bit of knowledge about the case, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> um, but also, you know, even for people that don't know anything about Amityville, I think, you know, it definitely can pull uh, obviously, see the psychological effect, but also pull many of the experiences that he talked about, which were you know, quite extreme uh, from Daniel's point of view anyway.
1: And you know, the the title is My Amityville Horror, and when you're watching it, you know, you expect it to be uh, the Amityville Horror story through Daniel's eyes, and it is that. But at the same time, it's also uh, very much the horror of what his life was like at the time, before it, and even after it. And we've all heard the story, and we've all seen the films, and, and George is always portrayed as almost like the, the protective father figure who. You know, is trying to provide for his new family in the best way that he can, and wants to take care of them. And then all these forces are coming against them, and you know they all rally around George, and George is kind of uh, falls victim to this just as much as anybody else. And I think that he's been kind of romanticized, and we we've lost the true story of of who George Lutz was. And it, and it seems like to the kids. And I know that there's plenty of people in the paranormal world who made friends with George Lutz in his later years and will stand by his character and and, and will say that he was a a great individual. But it seems like to these kids, you know, part of the horror was having to deal with George.
3: Right. And and what the story became, you know, and continues, was perpetrated in years afterwards. Um, You know, I didn't know George Lutz personally, so I can't speak to George's Character personally, Um, however, all of the people that I spoke with, uh, you know, excluding not only Daniel and Christopher, but also uh, Lorraine Warren, uh, Laura De Dio, people, you know, investigators that had talked to George at the time, everyone seemed to have some sort uh, of—I don't want to say negative, but some kind of you uh, know—interesting relationship with him in the way that there was some kind. You know, he was very wound up at the time. Um, then I would be too, of course, if I'm, you know, I'm leaving my house and, and everything that's in it and moving clear across the country and, and, uh, you know, you know, it definitely, obviously it was in the public eye at the time and so that was, that was difficult. But obviously from the children's perspective, you know, there, there definitely was a tumultuous relationship there with, with Daniel in particular. Um, but you have to, you know, let's face it, you know, the natural father was taken out of their life at a very young age and replaced with, uh, an ex-Marine, someone who was kind of domineering by all accounts over the over the kids. Mm. But also, Danny will be the first to admit you that he provoked a lot of this. Um, you know, he didn't like this person being in his life. Uh, he was instigating a lot of the fights that went on with George, um, breaking his stuff, you know, just kind of provoking, you know, fights and this type of thing. And so you have to wonder, you know, is some of it kind of, uh, self-instigated, you sure. know, in his in that, in that way. But I know that for sure that it, that it appears that the two boys see George completely differently. And they were there. None of us were there. Right. So and we have
1: to. I was going to say, it, it, it was similar with Christopher when we had him on. I mean, he did talk about the, you know, the domineering aspect of, of having George Lutz as a stepfather. But. He did share stories, you know, about when George first started coming around and was trying to make an impression on the boys of, of trying to be, you know, the cool guy on his Harley trike and popping wheelies and, yeah. you know, yep. trying, trying yeah. to be it's that type of same, figure.
3: Same stuff to me, yeah.
1: And, and it just seems like, you know, once... Um, they they both say that there was a little bit of that aspect of George before they moved into Ocean Avenue, you know, a little bit of that that, that domination, but that it became far worse in the house. And and I I think that, you know, Lorraine Warren makes a great point about it in the film. You know, how much of that is somebody's character and how much of that is the effect of what was going on?
3: Sure. And, And obviously this person comes into your life and then, you know, not even a year later we move into this house. All of this happens. We move clear across the country. You know, to a child, you're going to start to blame somebody for this. You know, well, as soon as this person showed up in my life, all of this started to happen. That may be you know. That's a theory of mine. Is you know that has to have some kind of uh, effect, at least in the personal relationship that you know between Danny and George. Um, but what's interesting to me is how somehow now the memory of the paranormal phenomena has been interlaced with the memory of George Lutz and what George Lutz represented. Because in many ways, for Danny at least, George Lutz re- represented the Amityville horror for Danny, mm-hmm. and there was no. I mean, of course. Being a documentarian, you can't try to say you you may be wrong on this. You may be remembering this wrong. You know, of course, my job, um, I conducted, for anyone who's seen the film, uh, we shot the film from a first-person perspective during the interview, which was having Daniel look into the camera. Because during my first interviews with him, I was sitting across the table, and he was, you know, chain-smoking cigarettes just as he is in the film. And, you know, he's a pretty rough guy. And he's sitting there. And he's going through these investigation photographs, and he's just going on and on. I mean, for, for I recorded over 12 hours of audio uh, when the first time I showed up there, and wow. had incredible access, uh, just an open discussion with him, which was very intense. And a lot of those original audio recordings that are throughout the film in various places were our original discussions, so it was kind of an organic way of in post-production, you know, initiating the audience to his story with what I was initiated with, which was interesting. But having him look into the camera in that way was a way to uh, have, you know, that was the most chilling aspect. You could see how much of an emotional effect it had on him in his eyes. You know, he's clearly, you know, sweating during the interview, you know, was extremely uncomfortable about the entire topic. Um and termed it, which the film opens with, which was I found very interesting, as an unfortunate gift in his life, which is pretty uh, and kind of a statement that says something about the entire case overall, what it represents for him, which I found interesting.
1: And I, I thought it was uh, very uh, admirable as, as a filmmaker and what you did in not only allowing Danny to tell his story. Uh, and, and to tell it freely But at the same time You also did bring in Different voices And different perspectives To what he had endured And I, I can't remember The name of, of the gentleman uh, But there was one person there Who uh, was part of the, the film Who suggested that Maybe there was some degree Of paranormal phenomena That took place uh, But not nearly at the level At which you know we are led To believe that it did
3: Right It was parapsychologist uh, Peter Jordan
1: uh, Right he, was,
3: he, he actually is real selective with a lot of the, you know, he, he said he was pretty selective with some of the programs that he had appeared in, and especially about Amityville. He didn't want to talk about it and actually then involved in debunking the case. You know, when, when Jay Anson's book came out in 77 um, and wrote, you know, uh, an, a co-authored article for Fate magazine uh, at the time. And, it, you know, they had investigated the claims that were in uh, uh, the book. James book, *The Amityville Horror*, and that, that's always been kind of my problem with, I guess, the debunking aspect from it is that people are trying to pull from the source that you know that obviously is a fictional account
0: mm-hmm.
3: by by the people uh, that were involved in it. Have you even said that too? So it's kind of been lost, as we as we talked about, lost in the myth uh, that's been built up around it from the very outset, um, which is pretty interesting now to see, you know the actual participants, you know, here we have Daniel Lutz, and When I first went there to New York to interview him, you know, I was hoping to, you know, think I'm going to get, you know, this entire perspective, you know, from beginning to end on everything. But obviously, um, not only, I, I got much more than that, but it was, it was, you know, so very difficult to put together a timeline in the sense that he didn't remember things from day one to 28, like I mentioned. Um, so that was, a, that was a great challenge, and, and obviously interlacing that with various perspectives of people who were there, Peter Jordan, Joel Martin, Laura DiDio, who I mentioned before, you know, was very, very key. Uh, she still had a lot of her original notes and investigation, uh, you know, notebooks and things from the story at the time. She actually was, you know, majorly instrumental in bring, bringing together a lot of the people who became attached to the story after Lutz has fled the house, like Ed and Lorraine Warren and Dr. Hans Holzer and you know, of various degree, of other people who, you know, became involved in the story. And, and she, you know, spoke to Bill Weber extensively as well. Um, so she kind of had a, you know, I, I think she has definitely the most objective viewpoint on the story from the people. And she was actually there. So I wanted to involve, you know, her to be the person to interview Danny Lutz, which I thought worked out, you know, immensely well. Right. And I, I greatly respect her opinion.
1: And I think, yeah, she did a fantastic job uh, as an interviewer. And it's just kind of um, – because, I mean, let's face it. and You, you experienced this in making the film. Uh, sometimes Lorraine Warren is a little, you know, hard to keep on topic sometimes. And uh, and I thought she did a great job of, of uh, kind of keeping things from getting a little – because there is that one very tense moment in the film uh, when Lorraine's about to bring out the relics – and right. and that right. definitely for for the viewer, you know, you you can tell if, if if that kind of encapsulates some of the the tension that there might have been in, in the filming and in getting Danny to open up about a lot of this stuff. I think that kind of portrays it perfectly. Uh, right,
3: and I was so pleased that that actually happened that you know the fourth wall was kind of broken there in the mm-hmm. sense that he had, Danny addressed the, the film crew, and that was actually me who he was addressing.
1: <laughs> oh, really?
3: <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and was calling out, you know. Uh, you know, who did, who is there anybody here that does not believe in God? And you know, of course, I had a previous conversation with Danny when I first arrived there, because uh, you know he'd asked me what my religion was, and and I would term myself as an agnostic. You know, I'm I'm more spiritual, but I don't I don't I'm not you know I don't practice any uh, organized religion mm-hmm. myself. Um, and Danny's Roman Catholic, which I totally respect, and and you know, everybody to their own. But I uh, he definitely uh, I think took a step back at that time you know thinking that you know I was saying that uh, you know that I did not believe in God which I was not saying you know so it was kind of an interesting outlook so it was interesting that that kind of came back up in the process of making the film Uh, it was kind of an opportunity to kind of call me out essentially in in front of the crew and it was a very tense and awkward moment you know of course we're doing an interview and then suddenly you know people are being called out you know from behind camera and it's actually quite humorous, too, with, you know, the roosters and, and everything going on. <laughs> Those are the things that you hope you hope happen as a documentarian. Of course, there's no script. So you're basically, you know, you're conducting from real life. And, uh, yeah, we just, you know, we went into her home, and, you know, she, I had already known about, uh, that she had uh, roosters inside the house, and, you know, I'd seen that in various other articles and things online, and, and had spoken to her actually at a seminar uh, years before. Um, but yeah, she's a lovely person, Lorraine, and and I uh, admire her very much.
1: And, and she's definitely, um, you know, I've, I've never questioned the genuineness of, of, what she believes in what she's saying. Uh, she's, she's one of the most, it's amazing how grounded she is for somebody who talks about things that are so fantastical.
3: Right. No, absolutely.
1: And, and of course, I, I don't want to give too much away f- uh, for people that see the film, but that, that's not the only time that, that Danny calls you out during the film either. Uh, there's that scene at the end <laughs> well, I thought he was going to jump he, over the table. Well,
3: he kind of did after the camera turned off. <laughs> but uh, that was uh, basically, basically, That's you know, I wanted to end the film on the note of the perfect note, which is was this a hoax or was this a true horror? And it will always be on that note because there will never be answered unless someone creates a time machine and we can all back, go back and see what happened. Mm-hmm. There's really no – there's no – that's always going to be left in that question because no matter how much someone can show how, you know, uh, traumatized they were and cry on camera and all these things that, ha- you know, it has happened over the years with the various participants, you know, it's no one's – people are still going to think, you know, this was a fraud or, or you know, was all truth, but there's no true evidence. Um, you know, I just asked him, "Would you be willing to take a polygraph test?" Uh, because you know, his parents, George and Kathy, actually took polygraphs in nineteen seventy nine during the release of the Amityville Horror, the original uh, film, and they passed. They both passed with flying you know flying colors. And so, you know, I prefaced that question with that statement, and you saw how he reacted in the film. Anybody sees it, you know, he gets very tense. He does say, yes, I would, but he, he took it as kind of an assault on his credibility.
1: Well, and he said, yes, I would, but he really hedged on answering the question for, for quite a sure. few minutes before he really did give you an answer.
3: Yeah, and I think, again, it, it was more of an emotional reaction as to, I sat here for eight hours and, and gave this interview, and now you're going to question my, the validity of my, my story? You know, and so that was kind of the reaction. Uh, from someone who was there, I can tell you that that was more of what that was about. Okay. But I thought that it was an interesting uh, way to end the film because, you know, he stops the tape and, you know, he got up and we did have words in the parking lot afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't yelling at him or anything, but it was more of just, a, you know, extremely intense discussion about, you know, thought I was trying to, you know, call him out on the spot. But I'm not sure why he he took it uh, as I, as I said, I think he took it as an assault on his credibility, but I, to this day I don't know why uh, he got so intense about that.
1: It could also be that you're probably the you know 400th person to ask him that question over the years, too.
3: Sure, and he even he even says that in the film, too.
1: Well, getting back to, to Peter Jordan and his his thoughts about what might have actually gone on in the house and about, being, about it being a less severe haunting that kind of got blown out of proportion, one of the things that I've wondered now that I've heard Danny's story, and now that I've heard Chris's story, and I get more of a sense of what it was like in that Lutz home, uh, I'm starting to wonder if maybe this isn't, and I don't know how much you've researched this aspect of paranormal phenomena, but this seems like it has the setup of being a classic poltergeist case, uh, in the sense of uh, poltergeist being something that happens around an agent. Psychokinesis. Exactly, and could it have been you know, that that, uh, Danny or Chris or even Melissa, even though she was only, you know, five years old, could it have been them butting heads with George is what caused a lot of this activity to manifest. Could that family dynamic have been what caused the haunting? And hence that's why no one else who's lived in that house has reported phenomena.
3: I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's an interesting theory. I mean, I've thought about it myself actually, you know, thinking that a lot of the family dynamics had a lot to do with what happened. I mean, even Danny says himself in the film that the more, um, the more anger in the house, the more amplified the paranormal events became.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and that's an interesting statement because, you know, was this was this bent or hinged on the emotions that were running through the family at the time? And one can only question. I mean, it's, like I said, it would be great to be able to go back and look for ourselves, but um, it's all left to this conjecture that's been left behind now. Um, but that is, that is a fascinating theory. And, something and it, that I've actually thought of myself yeah
1: and it could be something that they you know they would have been completely unaware of uh, that it was happening and that it was their own doing that would have caused it to happen but it's interesting that uh, you know Danny tells that story in the film about uh, encountering George in his garage and the uh, his own practice of the occult which Chris also alluded to on our show uh, when he was here with us uh, about the fact that prior to moving to that house uh, you know, they both had knowledge that that George was involved in, you know, at least the occult. I mean, I know that they admitted to transcendental meditation, well, but it seems to have been something. Right. What well, I severe. mean,
3: you know, TM isn't isn't certainly isn't an occult. I, I've always no. wondered that. You know, I, I I believe at least from my what I've been told by Danny is that uh, Kathy began practicing TM with George. You know, after meeting George and, and subsequently marrying him, and I have to wonder, you know. If, you know, someone's, you know, on the floor in a meditative state or something like, you know, like this, um, as people practice, you know, back in the 70s, this type of thing, you know, if, if from a child's perspective they would think that this is some sort of occult-like thing going on. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, that's just a theory. But also, um, you know, there's quite a difference in, I, I don't know, I've heard various statements on, on on shows and things from Christopher about what George was involved in, but it's, it's quite a different statement to, to suddenly take it out of um, the realm of just chanting and this type of thing that, that Christopher has claimed. And, and as Danny, you know, alleges that George was able to practice telekinesis and, and move objects with his mind, um, I have to admit, totally blew me out of the water and, and still kind of does to this day. I, I, I have a very difficult time with that story. But obviously, as a documentarian, you have to present... You know the account of what you're hearing, and it's something that really uh, I think makes or breaks people that are watching the film when that's when that's kind of said. Because you know he goes through a lot of the different events that we've heard, um, witnessing apparitions, um, you know stories of a levitation, this type of thing. But to take it out of the realm of, of spirits and put it into the realm of mind over matter, you know, is, is definitely a, a, a stretch. Um, certainly, I guess, you know, not if any of this phenomena could happen. I suppose that definitely could happen, too. But I found it uh, incredibly hard to swallow myself.
1: And, and also there's uh, it's almost like when he's bringing that up, it's almost uh, to make George, as you mentioned earlier in the show, you know, to, to place the blame on him and, and right. you know and to put him as the as the cause of all this phenomena and i think that if it if it happened relatively close to the way that it's been portrayed over the years uh, i mm-hmm. think that that would go beyond uh, you know anything george could have done but well you know who knows if he opened is, a door to something else
3: sure sure and in this film i think i think in many you know people have to remember that you know you have to watch it with an open mind but also it's it's kind of a, a gray area of the story in the sense that you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit and, and think about a lot of things that he's saying and, and it does require, I think, at least in my opinion, multiple viewings because it is one of those films that, you know, a lot of the things that are talked about um, can't can't or shouldn't be taken so literally. Um, mm-hmm. At this point, you know, there's no way to prove what he, he's saying other than I hope... Uh, I mean, certainly Christopher could come forward and either disprove or, or, uh, or con- you know... Uh, approve of what he's saying, but it's it's one of those things that we all have to wait and see. Like I said, Amityville's kind of a thread, so it just, just keeps going on. But yeah, I, I it was it's interesting what George represented for Danny at the time, uh, and, and and now as kind being kind of the trigger for the supernatural phenomena that allegedly happened there.
1: We are talking with Eric Walter. He's the director of the film My Amityville Horror which is uh, out now. If you go to amityvillemovie.com you can find out where there are screenings or how you can get it uh, to watch in your own home. And if you have any questions for Eric, you can give us a call 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can email us spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com or send us a question on Twitter at spooky SC. Uh, and of course there's also the chat room on spooky TV at spooky com. And one of the questions from the chat is Eric is uh, why didn't if if you know they had a problem with George and with what he was portraying over the years and, and kind of what he stood for, why didn't any of the children come out while he was still alive and, and call him out on these claims and from what I understand at least from Christopher's perspective he did when uh, when the 2005 remake came out you know he was speaking to the media uh, about George then so uh, did Danny mention you know ever wanting to speak publicly about George uh, while he was still with us.
3: No, and and Danny said that he was running away from this uh, for his entire life and didn't want to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, his motivation in doing this was to give a story to his children. You know that they and he had never told his children of who he really was um, and who he, you know, what this entire story was about within his life. So that was kind of his one of his main motivations in, in doing this. But obviously, you know, also exercising a few personal demons as well, I guess you could say. Um, but I have I have heard, you know, a lot of, about what you mentioned with Christopher and, and uh, he had actually taken, you know, George to court uh, at the time as well. And, you know, there was a lot of different things going on. So I always had to wonder, though, why, you know, if all of this went down and George was, was the culprit in this and, and it had somehow triggered this on the family, why uh, Kathy sat next to him in... 19, uh, in the 2000 uh, histories mysteries uh, interview,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, two part uh, documentary that was directed by uh, Dan Ferens uh, at the time, and that was one of the most comprehensive documentaries that was done on the Amityville Horror that uh, you know show, it brought together a lot of uh, participants for the first time and, and you know it had been 20 years. So uh, I always wondered why you know Kathy would have you know she was divorced from him for you know I think over 10 years by that point. You know why was she now sitting next to him? If if he was, you know, there was no more. What would be her motivation in coming back and defending this story with George? You know, after they had been divorced. You know, that's never really been uh, answered for me.
1: And and did Daniel remain a Lutz throughout his life, or did he revert back to Quartino like uh, like Christopher did?
3: He still he still carries the Lutz name, which is fascinating in and of itself.
1: I, I think there's probably something you know psychological involved with that.
3: Yeah. Yep. I think so, too.
1: (laughs) So when you're uh, when you're compiling all this information from him and and knowing what you know about the case, uh, you know, you're also working on this at a time when Amityville is kind of popping up as a as a cottage industry within the the resurgence of the paranormal world. And we've got the Ryan right. Katzenbach films coming out. We've got the Jackie Barrett TV special of Ronnie DeFeo and, and her book that came out. I mean, how much are you paying attention to this other Amityville stories that are, that are out there?
3: You know, it's, it's, it's definitely fascinating how much has been said and done and, 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 and uh, debated on this story for so many years. And what's, what's I think, you know, some of the, the shame of a lot of what's happened with the story is that, you know, parade of, of third-party witnesses that have come forward in the subsequent years to claim all kinds of, you know, things about this story that, you know, you have to question. Um, of course, Danny and his brother Chris were there. You know, so I, for for our film, we were really trying to base it on people who were actually there in the house at the time. And so we tried, you know, to remain very objective, on an objective basis with the case, and I believe the film reflects that. And so it's interesting to see not only the fiction, but the other Pieces that are coming out about this—it's—it's it's definitely uh, uh, an interesting uh, spectacle to behold here. <laughs> it,
1: it, it is. It's hard. It's hard though to look at the the Amadeville story because you, when you've, you're coming at it from two different sides, you've got the DeFeo story and you've got the Lutz story, and although they, you know, they take place within the same walls, uh, they're almost two completely different stories because All right. there's there's no guarantee that what happened to ronnie is the same thing as what happened to george for example you know it, it we're just speculating that because those murders took place that the house is haunted or because those murders take place there's something evil in the house that then plagued the lutzes and it it, it sometimes you have to kind of take them separately and uh and look at them as separate stories because it, it, it's almost like i feel this would have happened to the lutzes had they lived anywhere else too that's interesting
3: um You know, Danny actually said to me that he believed that if he and his natural father and Kathy and the family had moved into the house, that none of this would have happened. Hmm. So that's the degree of into which he blames George for what happened in the house. You know, I've always found it interesting that if the uh, the story is true, um, as the Lutzes and Father Ray Pecoraro, who was the the priest that was brought in uh, on moving day to perform a house blessing, if that story is true about him, uh, doing a house blessing, hearing a voice command him to get out, and feeling a disembodied hand slap him. If that if that is true, as he alleged at the time was, um, you know, certainly George, just by his mere presence of showing up that day, I don't think would have been able to uh, manifest that into being. You know, if, if you right. do believe in hauntings, you know, there seems to be an, a whole manner of thing going on at the house. I mean, people... Who believe in hauntings, obviously, or, or, you know, some people can be more susceptible to hauntings or be able to trigger hauntings into being. And everyone, including Lord Dio, kind of felt that was the case or a possibility that somehow George's personality triggered a lot of these events into happening. And so it's interesting how that's kind of come out now. Later, um, Laura, you know, claimed to me that that was being talked about at the time, you know, back in the '70s. But I, I guess since George was around. You know, it wasn't a main thread of the story, but it's it's fascinating how this is kind of not only taken on a life of its own, the story, but it's now you know being the the perspective is shifting. You know, now that George has passed away, now that Kathy has passed away, you know, it's the torch is being passed to Daniel and his brother, and so now it's you know it's, it's now it's looking at it from a this perspective of someone who was there, but through a child's eyes. So, you know, I think there's an emotional outlook on that, which is in a lot of ways unguarded. And that's a lot of what is in the film, in my Horror.
1: And and Danny seems to put a lot of uh, stock in the investigations that uh, Ed and Lorraine conducted in that house. And, and uh, you know, you said that you showed him the, the ghost boy photo, and that was the first time that he'd, he'd really encountered that. Uh, I mean, what what is your honest opinion of his reaction to what happened there? Because I know that that photo is a source of great controversy within the paranormal field.
3: Right. Yeah, no, I I didn't mean to suggest that was the first time he had actually seen the the ghost boy photograph. There were a number of photographs that he hadn't seen of the house and his things, but he had stated that he believed that that photo, um, you know, was genuine. Um, It's interesting because a lot of uh, friends of mine, and and people have done some research about this, and Ed Lorraine Warren had an assistant named Paul Bartz who was there that night of March 6, 1976, and he actually was wearing a flannel shirt, and uh, had his hair, his dark, you know, hair parted in a similar manner. And if you look at that photograph up close, it appears that whoever is peering around that corner, whether it be a spirit or whether it be a person, is wearing eyeglasses. Um, I guess you could say it's luminescent eyes, but uh it looks like because of the camera there were hundreds of photographs of that exact same hallway that were taken. Uh there was a camera on a timer uh that was set up by a, a gentleman named Gene Campbell, who was a photographer Hired by the Warrens there that night, and that camera was taking photographs rapidly. Uh, you know, on a, it was on a timer and taking hundreds of photographs of this entire of this second floor hallway. And so, peering around this corner, it appears to be you know a, what looks like a little boy very similar to one of the DeFeo children, which has been said and has been set by George Lutz in lectures. And uh, you know, I, I know that at least from what the peers that George believed that was genuine, and, and Danny has also said that he believes that is genuine. Um, the gentleman I mentioned, uh, Paul Bartz, it looks very similar to him. And if you look at closely, you can see that through the bars of the stairway, it looks like he's wearing a flannel shirt. Mm-hmm. So you have, to, you have to ask yourself, you know, what, what's more likely here? I would go with the latter and think that it's actually one of the, you know, a, the, the assistant to the Warrens or someone in the house at the time. But the people who were in the house claim that that, you know, they, they believe that that's uh, evidence of some sort of paranormal activity, uh, which is interesting. It's definitely a chilling photograph no matter what. <laughs> but also, um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the, uh, the moose head photograph. Are you guys familiar with that photograph as well?
1: Uh, I'm not sure, but if I if I look at it, I might be once I see it. But uh, tell everybody about, well, there was, about that.
3: A, there was a photograph of Lorraine Warren uh, standing with two of the investigators, um, and it's, a, it's basically a wide shot of what the, the sunroom like a porch room, uh, in the front of the house. And there was George had a moose head that was up on the mantel above the bar, I believe. And um, so this is up on the wall, and, and in, the, in the actual moose head, the hair near the antlers, it looks like what appears to be an apparition of uh, Padre Pio, who is a saint. Mm. I'm not sure if you're familiar who that is, but um, he's actually referenced in the film uh, by Lorraine Warren.
1: Right, yeah, she had the the
3: hair. Correct, correct, yeah. And that was the actual relic that she was carrying at the time during the investigation in that photograph. So it's one of those things that, you know, they believe that there's an an actual manifestation of Padre Pio in the house in that photograph, and to me it looks like, you know, either an antler or a part of the moose head. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: (laughs) So it's, again, it's it's all in what you believe, and just like anything else with the paranormal in, in this case, you know, it's all... Uh, perceptive.
1: Well and that's the problem: is when you're going into a spot where you're expecting it to be haunted, or you're expecting the activity to take place, your mind kind of makes that leap in logic uh, immediately when something looks out of place.
3: Well, I've always felt that about what you know George saying that this was this was that you know showing that picture uh, in a, a lecture with a, against the a picture of I believe it was John DeFeo, um, you know showing John DeFeo that you know the young boy, the young DeFeo boy. Uh, with the the Ghost Boy photograph trying to show, you know, you know, kind of wowing the audience in the sense that this is, you know, evidence of the paranormal. So it does make you wonder if it, you know, it's, you're trying to show that this was a genuine thing. I, I just don't, you know, I don't believe the, the uh, photograph is a genuine uh, paranormal nature, but I could be wrong. You know, I wasn't there.
1: I mean, I, I've shown the same photograph in lectures myself. I, I do. I actually uh, have a lecture that I I do around here that. Traces the similarities between the Amityville case and the Lizzie Borden case, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just oh, that's com- interesting. comparing a couple of different dysfunctional families. But uh, right. and when I show that photograph up there, you know, it's it's immediately met with <sighs> right. before you even take right. a few seconds to, to start explaining what it could be. You know, it just has that emotional punch because people are looking for the physical evidence because we never actually got physical evidence in the Amityville case,
3: right? And and certainly, I mean, the people. Uh, well, in the day and age that we live in now where we have, you know, programs like Ghost Hunters and Paranormal State and things, you know, where people are recording EDPs and, you know, a very high energy type of atmosphere, you know, our film was very much obviously psychological based, but you know, it was it was less interested in trying to prove those things because there there was nothing there is no way to prove any of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> there is no way to prove I would have loved like I mentioned so many times, I'd love to have had uh, Christopher come on and, and give his story and originally that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, uh, compare and contrast and, and, you know, get both of them to speak, if not all three kids. Um, so my only hope is that Christopher either does come forward or just lets this entire, you know, is able to move past this. And I hope that for Danny as well. Well, uh, one... it's ex- Extremely hard thing to let go. And I don't think they'll totally be able to do that.
1: One of the problems for, with Christopher for letting go of that is that it's, it's still plaguing him to this day. He, he feels like there's still some sort of uh, force or entity that, that's around him even now and that it's right. affecting his life. And, and I, I get the feeling that Danny doesn't feel the same way about it. Uh, you know, there's obviously there's the emotional uh, effect of it and from the years of, of having to deal with it. But uh, it doesn't seem like he feels like he's a, a victim of any kind of paranormal attack right now.
3: Well, no, I wouldn't say that's the case for Danny. You know, it all has to do with your belief in it. I mean, if you believe this wholeheartedly, certainly things may have more of a chance to manifest themselves in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that's why I mentioned, you know, I, I, would, I would hope um, that they're able to let go of it in one way or another. And in many ways, this film was Danny's way of doing that. I mean, he, he could have come out and done this twenty five years ago.
0: You
3: now when he was you know, much younger. You know, one has to wonder why now. Right. Um, you know, he's a he's a you know, a regular guy, a blue collar guy, uh, in the Whitestone area and, and it's just a you know, it's an interesting um inter- interesting perspective. You know, he came he came to me, you know. And I was, you know, I, I you know, relatively much younger than I am now at the time when I first started this, <laughs> let's put it this let's put it that way. But uh you know, I was just someone who was very, very passionate about the story and, and wanting to do something, uh, do it the right way, using real witnesses who were there and, and not, you know, venturing into this whole uh, third-party witness type of scenario that I mentioned before, which, you know, it's, it's just a shame to see this being, this happening so much with this case.
1: Well, I mean, um, y- y- so it was a
3: unique opportunity to get, you know, perspective of somebody who was actually there at the time.
1: And, and you mentioned him being a blue collar guy. I mean, he's a gearhead. You know, you can tell that he, you know, right. he loves working on cars and trucks, and and uh, and he's a, a hell of a guitarist too. From the, the different clips you put in the film, uh, so I mean, he probably, you know, travels in circles where uh, he doesn't really want to be talking about this to those type of people, and he probably gets a lot of uh, guff from some of his friends and, and acquaintances over this kind of thing. So he really is putting himself out there, uh, and, and right. Kind of going back and putting himself out there just as he was in the seventies, you know. You worked hard right. to, to build yourself away from being who you identified yourself with as a kid and then you're getting dragged back into that. So he obviously right. had to in get so that. It's
3: it's like a, a fatal attraction for for Danny. Mm-hmm. And I felt that it seems to be the same way for Chris at least it appears that way. You know. I, I don't know what I would do if if you know if I you know if I was in that position, you know. At, you know, in my adult life, if I, if I want to, you know, move forward and tell a story about something, you know, I, now I would say I'd probably let it go and not want to be, you know, live with that label. But to me, he'd say that same question. You know, I, one of my first questions was, why now? He answered by telling me, you know, that he wanted to give a, the answer to his children, but also that he's been living with this label so long it didn't matter, you know, now. So it does, it does show you, as the therapist even asks him in the film, do you see yourself as the Amityville guy? And he says, yeah, because I am the Amityville guy. Right. And, you know, it's one of the most tragic lines that he actually drops in the film. But to me, one of the most revealing, too, is that he says that, you know, he's, uh, you're talking to uh, Danny, Daniel's bodyguard, hmm. which in many ways shows that he's protecting, you know, the 10-year-old that's somewhere still inside of him which really shows itself throughout the past the film progresses so again this these things kind of revealed themselves in his character as the film went on and um, you know is it's, it's in many ways extremely tragic and sad and that for me is the real amityville horror and it less about you know certainly about the paranormal events that happen or didn't happen or the effect that it's had on him and the scars that it's left behind
1: and it it really has been uh, sounds like it's been horrific for him. But you know, I can't let you go, Eric, without asking you about the uh, claim that he makes in the film that he was demonically possessed and, and had to undergo exorcisms, and that uh, mm-hmm. that that even seemed to have caused some tension in, in that line of questioning as well. But uh, I mean, how much can you put in, in into how much thought can you put into what he's saying there? I mean, if that's true, then that takes this beyond. Uh, what we think that the Amityville horror hauntings might have been, and and maybe it does go along with what Ronnie DeFeo and, and Jackie Barrett have been claiming, that there was some sort of demonic entity uh, involved in this, had it also taken control of Danny at some point in his life.
3: Right. I mean, I found it, you know, as with many of the claims, I found it, you know, interesting. I found it difficult to accept that wholeheartedly until I hear it from other sources as well.
0: Oh, really? Uh, namely,
3: Chris, namely from Christopher. I mean, I believe that Danny believes what he's saying there. Um, I don't think that he's fabricating. I know that it has been, it has been said to me uh, that you know, the kids were left uh, in a mission, uh, in a church, uh, during which George and Kathy uh, were on a, a tour for the original uh, book and movie. See, um, but
1: how can you do that as a parent if you endorse something like right. that, where your parent where you right. felt like your children's lives are in jeopardy, and if you believe any part of the John Jones books at all, and, and this mm-hmm. this horror followed them to California, why would you leave your children? I would think you'd want to have them around you nonstop.
3: You know, I couldn't answer that question. Right. You know, it was it was something that you know, I know Danny said that the move to San Diego at the time was for fam- family therapy. You know, to get themselves away from New York, to get away as far away from this as possible, and I know George has also said that as well. Um, so, in many ways, you know, you have to wonder, yeah, what, how, how. At least from my perspective, I don't know if I could ever leave my children behind. You know, very shortly after living through this situation, they had to have been very comfortable with, um, you know, the people in this church. But apparently, according to Danny, there was all kinds of abuse and and and. Uh, all kinds of, you know, apparently he was uh, undergoing an exorcism, according to him. But uh, Danny has, it, my suspicion is Danny has the tendency to exaggerate certain elements of his story. And at least that's in the theatricality that he has in his, in his stories. Um, and I can't pinpoint which one, because like I said, I would be interested to see what Christopher says about that. Uh, him being exorcised, this type of thing. But who knows? I mean, it's, it's Danny's work, so it's all for us to debate now.
1: Well, I know Christopher has listened to the show uh, in the past, and if he's listening to this episode, you know, definitely get in touch with either me or or with Eric, and, you know, and I I just, I think that, not that you want to spend more years of your life dealing with the Amityville story, I mean, but uh, I could see a scenario where you make a a follow-up film where Christopher gets the chance to sit in front of the camera and and share his own story.
3: Right. Well, we, you know, I I am open to Christopher uh, coming forward, and so... Anything's possible for sure, so I'll be interested to speak with him at, at some point when he's ready to. All
1: right. Well, and it, I was reading your bio at the beginning of the show and it says that you do have some uh, some upcoming projects. What are you working on next?
3: You know, it's it's kind of in it's another documentary feature project. I have several things going on, but it's in such a, an infancy stage right now. It's kind of a sensitive because I'm working with different uh, uh, people that are involved. It is a, a very it is in a haunting case, but it is in the. Um, uh, UFO phenomena realm.
0: Actually. Oh wow!
3: <laughs> yeah, so it'll be uh, interesting to uh, a little bit of an interesting switch, but well, also very much from a humanistic perspective, just as you know, miami horror was. Um, so that's kind of my niche, just kind of humanizing and and presenting witness-based stories in a cinematic and you know a more of a rich, textured way.
1: I wish my uh, my regular. Uh, second co-host was in here tonight, Matt Moniz. He's he's been working on abduction cases for uh, for over thirty years, and he used to work closely with Bud Hopkins. And uh, he's, wow, he's, well, that's interesting. So he might be somebody that you want to talk to somewhere down the line for sure.
3: Yeah, you have to uh, shoot me an email or something for Absolutely. sure. that's that's fantastic. I'd love to come back on when uh, things get rolling here.
1: Oh, we'd love to have yeah. you, and and thank you so much for joining us tonight and for for actually taking the time to to allow. Danny to tell his story uh, in his own words without having to worry about if it has those, you know, Hollywood Amityville overtones that we've become so used to, to, to get the raw story like that, uh, it definitely changed right. my mind and, and made me realize that, you know, these three kids that went through this they're they're just people, they're not characters in a book or a film.
3: That's right and you know what, finally, finally that's been done and I'm glad to have been the one to do that, however, it's a shame it's taken this long. Right. <laughs> For for someone to present it, you know, in at least in my perspective, the right way, and you know, do some justice to this story, and it's been dragged through the mud by Hollywood, and that's unfortunate.
1: And that being said, uh, you'll be re-releasing the film as My Amityville Horror three D coming up next summer, right?
3: <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> no, that's not that won't be happening under my watch anyway.
1: <laughs> All right. I think there is another. There's rumors of another three D one coming out. So
3: yeah, it's it's it just it never went. That's yeah. for sure, but. uh, uh Amlevil train keeps going into 2013 and beyond. I guess.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I guess you know at some point it stops being your story and starts becoming uh, you know American folklore, and I think that's something that has been part of what the losses have had to deal with.
3: Absolutely, and now it's, it seems to be living within Danny himself, which was very evident to me, and that was part of part of what the film portrays. So. We're actually working on a, a little behind-the-scenes piece right now for the uh, Blu-ray and DVD that's going to be released by IFC Films coming up here. Oh, excellent! I believe this summer. So there'll be a little bit more of an insight to look forward to when that uh, comes out. So,
1: and maybe even, something to look forward to. Maybe even some of the uh, you know the the uh, outtakes where we actually did kick your ass for some of the questions you were asking. <laughs>
3: well, we do have actually an interesting clip. If you have a, a sec, we have an interesting clip of. Um, when we were out front of the house, actually, uh, someone had a 70, a, a little Canon 70, um, you know, camera rolling. Uh, when uh, one of the owners of the house at the of the t- at the time, when we were doing that opening shot of Danny standing, you know, smoking a cigarette in front of the house, mm-hmm. out comes the owner of the house and demands we turn the camera off. Of course, we had permits to shoot there on the street. We weren't on the lawn or anything like that, and and. Uh, you know, the owner of the house comes out and yelling at me, you know, what are you doing out here with this huge camera? You know, we were shooting on the red one, you know, it's enormous, you know, cook lens on the front of it. And You know, so it was, clearly wasn't a home video thing going on here. And, uh, so, you know, I'm trying to calm the guy down a little bit, and Danny turns to him and, and says, my name is Daniel Lutz, and I am the Amityville Horror, and, and back off, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. So he uh, turned
1: around and went right back to, inside, right?
3: Right. Well, kind of, It you know. And you could see the, the gentleman kind of waving the camera up to turn the camera off. So it's kind of one of those funny uh, clips that I wish I could show, but, you know, I don't want to identify. him we'll just put the face out or something. Right. <laughs> so, but, you know, there's been, there's been so many stories. I could probably write a book called Miamiville Horror about my experience.
1: <laughs> well, if you do, we'd love to have you back on to discuss it. <laughs>
3: right. All
0: but, right.
1: We will definitely talk to you when your next film is, uh, is out there. Thank you so much for joining us, and, and everybody can keep up to date with the film at, uh, at amityvillemovie.com.
3: Great. Thanks so much. Great. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Eric. Have a great night. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, that is Eric Walter. He is the director of the film My Amityville <laughs> Horror, and... If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It's available on demand. Comcast has it. Verizon has it. It's available on all the video on demand services online. And, of course, there's screenings around the country. Just go to AmityvilleMovie.com, which is also linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com. That about does it for tonight. Uh, but we will be back next week. Uh, we'll be talking more about the world of the paranormal. Stay tuned. Follow us on SpookySouthCoast.com. Follow us on Twitter at SpookySC. You can also read my blog on WBSM.com and also linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. We'll we'll offer some different perspective of the topics that we cover and the topics that are coming up, some interesting paranormal news up there. Matt Costa, I'd like to invite you to kind of share some of the stories that you've been putting on Twitter uh, and maybe do some blog posting uh, on the blog as well. Yeah, sure. And, uh, of course, that's where we're going to be putting the the video YouTube archive and the audio Mm. as well. So we'll be back next week with more Spooky South Coast.